I want to welcome you again to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. It's May 3rd and a beautiful day. Uh, if you didn't catch the opening, I opened today with Psalm 88. A somber psalm, but one that I think appropriately reminds us in seasons like these, uh, as a community of believers, to trust in the Lord as the source of our hope, our salvation, the foundation of our lives. Let's look at the text today. We're at 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so we're looking at the first 13 verses. Now we're going to flip back and forth from uh, the previous chapter, chapter 15, as well as some of the text uh, that follows what we read today. But I want to focus today on 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 to 13. It's a new month, which means it's a new figure of scripture that we're looking at. And today we are looking at uh, King David, right? King David. So um, I know you in your own life probably know somebody named David. Uh, It's one of the more prominent figures in Scripture. And so we'll take the month of May to examine and look at some narratives and some stories of this king. Let's pray. Let's word the word together. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 to 13. This is what the word of God says. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked to Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Amen. The word of, the God, word of God today. Um, we're going to be praying uh, this morning for, or this afternoon, I guess, uh, for yet another uh, people group that is unreached. Our unreached people group of the day comes again from the nation of India, and they are the Yadav Dindor. There are about 1.519 million of these people, none of them Christian, completely unreached. And so we would like to pray for the Yadav Dindor, and we'd like to pray for their salvation, and that they would know the truth of Jesus Christ, as you and I do. We also want to pray, of course, um, for the continuing effects and influence of the coronavirus globally. I know there's a lot of things happening in the world, India being one of the nations that is being stricken hard right now, along with Russia and a few others. 
Um, but I want to pray for something a little bit more closer to home today. I'd like to pray for you. I would like to pray for your own um, season, what you're going through. I don't know, if, obviously, specifically, um, the ups and downs that perhaps you're you know, swinging back and forth from or you could be in a, maybe this is the best time of your life or, you know, for some of you, it could be the worst time of your life. Um, but we want to pray for that. And we, I want to pray for uh, a restoration if it's needed. And I want to pray for a reminder if it's needed. And I want to pray uh, that you would come to the Lord this day and every day in, in humility and with hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the text of 1 Samuel 16, 1-13 as it has been left for us to read, to interpret, to ponder, and to gain from. And so would you help us, O oh Lord, to do this, to do exactly that this day. Lord, we pray for the Yadav Dindor of India, this people group, over one and a half million of them unreached, none of them Christian, God. We pray, Lord Father, for salvation among these people. We pray, Lord Father, for the gospel to reach them through means which only you know, so, Father, we pray for, whether it be the medium of the church or other methods of revelation, that, Lord, these people would hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and come to know him. God, we also pray for our brothers and sisters sitting at home today who are joining us either through live stream or are watching a recording. I pray, Lord, Father, whatever season they're in, whatever mood they are in, God, whether it be high or low, anything in between, Father, they would be reminded of the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel we believe. And then, Lord Father, that no emotion, no chemical imbalance within our body, no fluctuation in mood could ever, ever cause our heart to depart from you. Help us, O oh Lord to look to the suffering servant that is Jesus Christ and remember that our lives at times will be in seasons of suffering. I thank you and I pray all the same Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> wow, what a beautiful day, isn't it? Uh, the weather's really nice um, and I hope you can enjoy it in some safe manner today and I commend you to do so. Uh, if you're not an outdoorsy person like myself, I think it's time we go outdoors a little bit. <laughs> so if you can enjoy it this today, uh, today, maybe go for a walk or a run or something, uh, I totally recommend that. Today's sermon is entitled, God Anoints His King. God Anoints His King. Now we're coming right off the stories of Moses. And so we've skipped a lot, right, in Israel's history. We've, they've done the Canaanite conquering and they've entered the promised land. They've done the wilderness thing. They've done a lot of things. And here we find ourselves... Um, in the second king already of Israel. We've gone through judges and Israel cries for a king and here they are. So let me lay down sort of the scenario or at least the time frame of where we are in Israel's history. Since the institution of Israel as a nation under God post-Exodus, so departure from Egypt, the Israelites were meant to be a theocratically governed state. In other words, they were meant to be governed by God. Their God was their king and rightfully so. Moses, their first leader, was simply a physical instrument of God that was used as his voice, God's voice, over his people. Moses was no different than any other Israelite citizen. He was a Hebrew. And certainly there is no indication of 
kingship or noble status that is given to Moses at any point, right? He's never, you know, heralded as a king of Israel. His successor was, of course, Joshua, son of Nun, who also carried out the commands of God and led Israel in accordance with God's commands into the promised land, the promised land that Moses was prohibited from entering. But as time passed and as the people began to settle into their new newfound territory, as the stories of old literally became stories of old, Israel began to rebel. Of course, they rebel throughout their history, but they really start to rebel. And in their rebellion and transgressions against God, prophets and judges are sent to declare a warning of repentance and return to the Lord. Now, some would yield positive results, right? Some judges, some some of those prophets, they yield good results, while others would utterly fail in their endeavors as Israel would completely ignore them and become even less faithful. And then Samuel is born in the very first chapter, or at least the first chapters of First Samuel, the chapter, the book we're reading today. And he's born to his mother, Hannah. Hannah, of course, was barren and she had to pray for uh, a child. And she's given one miraculously by the will of God. He's offered, uh, because of this miracle, he's offered to the temple into the service of God by Hannah and anointed as Israel's prophet by God. Now, a man who God spoke to, uh, sorry, this was a man who God spoke to and then who in turn would speak to Israel those very words. Um, you could say he's sort of like a, the prophets of the Old Testament are the early renditions of preachers today. What? Ones who declare and herald and, uh, I guess, bring forth God's word, right? As it is given unto them. It's a special task. So that's Samuel. Israel demands in the midst of Samuel's uh, life or career as a prophet, they demand a king. So Israel demands a king as they desire to look like the nations around them. So here's the foolishness of Israel. They look at the nations around them and go, well, they got a king, they got a king, they got a king, and they got a king. They have a God. And they're like, oh, they have a king, they have a king. And they're like, give us a king. We need a king. We don't have a king, right? Man, you have something better and you want a king. But anyways, that's what they do. And so they look at the nations around them and they demand a king. Guess who they demand it from? They demand it from Samuel. And, they, and essentially, they're asking God, give us a king. We want to look like the other nations. You can already tell where this sermon is going, right? Anyways, it's a total failure by Israel uh, in terms of their recognition of their one true king, God, who is the superior king. God in his graciousness provides a seemingly fitting king, however, right? Uh, one who looks the part. But in the chapter prior to today's, in chapter 15, he would prove himself to be a disaster. One could look like the ideal candidate, yet be so far from it. Right? The kings of Israel and the kingship of Israel, the earthly physical throne, would act to remind Israel and you and I today that no man can be king like God can. And one day that throne will be replaced by the heavenly throne on which the true king resides. And so, the promise of this king, this God of ours, the language of a king to come, begins to brew in the texts of First and Second Samuel through the life and journey of David. First and Second Samuel are framed, if you read the text carefully, 
by the promise of the true king, the one true king and the Messiah of Israel. In Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, right, she talks about a messianic promise. And then David's psalm in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-two, he again looks to the anointed one to come. If God has already established the priestly office of the Messiah in the earlier books of the Old Testament prior to 1 Samuel, then he will now begin to establish the kingly office of the Messiah. And we begin to look at the anointing of Israel's most heralded and famous of kings, King David. So let's take a look. I got two points to sermon today. And the two points are this. The first, sin is always a valid basis for rejection from God. Sin is always a valid basis for rejection from God. Point number two, earthly thrones are subject to the heavenly throne. Earthly thrones are subject to the heavenly throne. So there's two points today, uh, but I want to go in depth on this. So bear with me. Point number one, sin is always a valid basis for rejection from God. Saul is rejected by God and his kingship is taken from him. Now, of course, this is a kingship that God had initially given him. But it's taken from him due to his disobedience of God's word and sin against God's word throughout and at the end of his kingship. He didn't start off bad, right? He wasn't terrible from the beginning. There were positive signs. But this really reminds me of the good soil, bad soil parable, right? Seeds fall. Looks like it's growing. And then thorns and rocks and birds. Right? Um, there's only good or bad soil. But anyway, Saul seemingly looks like a good king, but he ends up proving himself to be otherwise. And he demonstrates throughout his king, kingship a, re- a relatively common trait that's found in us. At least I want to generalize and I want to say that it's most likely found in all of us. And that tendency and that trait is this. Obey God's word the way we want to. Right? That's Saul's failure, isn't it? He obeys God's word the way he wants to. So whose word is he really obeying? Or is it even obedience at all? In fact, this type of obedience is no obedience at all. For what does it lead to? And here comes the modern 2020 issues, okay? This is a problem of liberal theology. This is what happens. Over-contextualization, modern reinterpretation, and compromise of God's word. Right? That's what Saul's doing when we look at the stories. Why was Saul chosen, you might ask, as Israel's first king to begin with? Why did God even establish him? I think there's divine reasons for that. But let's look at the establishment and anointing of king, of, sorry, of Saul as king. The first king of Israel. So as I told you earlier, in chapter 8, verse 4, Israel's elders come to Samuel. These are the wisest men of Israel. They come to Samuel and they demand a king. They demand a king, ironically, to judge them, they say. Give us a king that he may judge us, they say, in verse 4. And he also says, and to rule over, like, over us like other nations. We want what they have. And we're, we're so... Fickle, right? We always want what other people have. I mean, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Stop envying, right? Anyways, a desire to be like those around them. It's ironic because the whole point of Israel's institution is to not be like the nations around them. And instead to make the nations around them 
more like them. But thus is the issue in the church today as well, right? We want to be contemporary. We want to be a modern church. We want to be a cool church. A church for the unchurched. That kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying those evangelistic banners and thoughts are wrong. But the church is the church, brothers and sisters, and we stand for the word of God, right? We're different. We can't be the same as the world and, and think that we can change it. We change the world by being different from the world. So they create a need where there isn't one. There is no need for a king, but they ask for one. For who would want a human king over our heavenly father? <laughs> this is a gross misunderstanding of who God is. In that same chapter, chapter 8, verse 22, after a series of warnings from Samuel regarding the appointment of a human king, Samuel warns them, are you sure this is not a good idea? These are the reasons why. God tells Samuel, let them have their king. Notice the words, let them have their king. Chapter 9, verse 16, God reveals Saul as the first king of Israel. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel anoints Saul as king with the pouring of oil over his head, just like he did with David today. But note here that unlike David's anointing, there is an omission and no mention of the spirit of the Lord coming to him. Just oil poured on his head. Verse 10, or sorry, chapter 10, verse 24. Saul is publicly announced as king and accepted by Israel because he's tall, he's handsome, he's good looking, right? By the way, I'm a short guy, so I, I really love this stuff because uh, it's just, you know, diminishing tall people. But anyways, chapter 11, verse 1 to 25, which is the entire chapter, is a public anointing of Saul and affirmation and confirmation of Saul as king. Here's a few things we learned from the appointment of Paul, or sorry, the appointment of Saul as the king of Israel. There are a few things to note here. Israel demanded a king, and God gives them a king for them. A king for them, for their people. For, sorry, a king that is appointed for their sake, for the people. He is a king like the other nations have, a crappy one, and one that looks like a king, outwardly fitting, but inwardly not. So where he lacks will be where David excels, his heart. Because Saul, unlike David, his heart will not be after God's. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. What does it describe about David? The Lord sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. In today's text, what did it say in verse 7? The Lord looks at the heart. Lord looks at the heart. There's another thing we learned from Saul's appointment. Saul's kingship acts as a typological representation of our sinful, idolatrous inclination. Our sinful idolatry. Remember the golden calf last week that we looked at? That same nature exists, but it's represented through the appointing of Paul. And his kingship acts as a representation of what? Our inclination and tendency to king earthly things over God in our lives. It teaches us that our hearts are prone to wander, as the, as the hymn says. Prone to wander away from God, in desire away from perfection. 
It's ironic, we have a perfect God and yet we want an imperfect king, right? You love God, but you also love things. And you treat things like God. It reminds us of how we've thrown, that's a verb, how we've thrown infinitely lesser things in our lives for our sake, for our reasons, our selfishness rather than honoring God as the true king of our lives. Something can look worthy of being your God, right? Sometimes something is so desirable and our sinful flesh just goes after this. And it could look like it's worthy of being your God. But over time, those things will prove their inability to even compete in the same arena as God. Name one thing in your life that you really, really wanted. Like you just absolutely had to have. And you still care about it that much today. Do you even know where those things are? By this time in Saul's kingship, he has already committed a series of errors and mistakes, proving his unworthiness and unfit character to be the king of God's people. Let's look at the prior chapter to today's main text, chapter 15. And when we look at the first nine verses, verses 1 to 9, God had commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites for their treachery and increasing sins against God and his people that began back at the Battle of Rephidim in Exodus 17. The Amalekites uh, treacherously allowed Israel to pass them by, but then attacked them from behind and killed their women and children, right? That was a, that was a no, no good move on their end. Now remember, God is for his people. In the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, what did he say? Right? Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse, I will curse. And the Amalekites in their treachery were spared. They were spared initially, but their judgment is sealed by their unrepentance before God. God didn't destroy the Amalekites as soon as they acted in treachery against Israel. God gave them time to think about their ways, you know, and maybe turn away from their sins, just like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. But what happens? Nada. They get worse. And so, finally, their sins have multiplied so much that it's time for them to pay the cost of their sins. And so that judgment will come at the hand of the king of Israel, King Saul. So what, is, what does God tell Saul to do? Saul is told to go and lay siege on them and cleanse the land of the Amalekites. And such is the treatment of sin by God. Don't get this wrong, brothers and sisters. I don't want to take the gruesome nature of this scene away from the scene. I want you to focus on the gruesome nature of this scene. Because your sin is that gruesome that the cleansing of your sin requires God to lay siege on you. He will lay siege against sin and sinners alike to restore creation back to good. We have already seen a preview of such a cleansing at the flood with Noah. However, Saul decides upon his victory over the Amalek king and the Amalekites that he will spare the king, Agag, maybe as a trophy to flaunt in front of people and to take home their prized livestock. Now remember, it's Saul's decision, but later you'll see the pettiness of this man. 
Victory spoils, if you will, right? That was a common practice in the near, near Middle East, right? You win a battle, you take things from them. And so he does. But God had commanded, do not take anything. When he said, destroy and cleanse, he meant cleanse. Like everything. But why, why, why uh, destroy a bunch of sheep and ox? They didn't kill us, right? They didn't commit treachery against Israel. Let's take these things home. They look good to eat. This was clearly something that Saul was told not to do in the initial command by God in chapter 15. And however, his selfishly collected spoils will in turn spoil him. Chapter 15, verse 10 to 35. This is an interesting sequence. There's a disturbing conversation that ensues between Saul and Samuel. There's high tension here. And what we observe is the continued demonstration of the ungodly character in Saul. So follow with me and you tell me if you notice these things in your own life because it certainly appears in mine. Verse 13 and 20 in chapter 15. Pride. When grilled on his disobedience, his pride comes out. Paul thinks he has done well before God. He says, didn't I do well? Didn't I obey him? I did obey him, he says to Samuel. But he's also quick to mention the disobedience of his army shortly after. They brought the sheep and the oxen and all those things. Look what they did. So he knows he hasn't followed orders on one end, but prides himself in accomplishing obedience to his own personal standard and satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, obedience is measured by God's standard, not our own. And obedience is either total or it's a failure. That's it. It's as simple as that. Verses 15 to 21. Here's a second trait that comes out in, in uh, Saul. Blame shifting. Let's just put it simply. He blames others, right? And we've already seen this at the fall with Adam and Eve, right? Such is the tendency of sinners to blame others instead of admitting one's own guilt. We've observed this tendency before. And we've also talked about the opposite reaction of the truly repentant. What do the truly repentant say? In Isaiah 6, what does he say when he sees the glory of God? Woe to me, I cry, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What does Moses cry on the mountain when he sees the glory of the Lord pass by before him? I have sinned against you. Right? They don't blame others. They own their sins. They take responsibility for them. Verses 24 to 25. Finally, the third trait that comes out that I think is treacherous, treacherous in the human heart. Fake repentance. Artificial repentance, if you will. Here's Matthew Henry, the commentator, who says this on this verse. It is too evident that he only acts the part of a penitent and is not one indeed. Note that the truly repentant sinner would demonstrate remorse in owning their sin, just like I mentioned earlier. Not a desperation to be accepted by God. The, real, the one who truly realizes their sin and their sinful nature realizes also a fate that they deserve and a judgment that is appropriate. Note David's response to his sin with Bathsheba, that later we will examine. But in that sequence, when he sins... He kills the, the husband of this woman. He commits adultery. He's, he's, he's disgusting in this scene. By any account, right? This is the kind of stuff that, you know, discredits politicians and they have to stop their political careers, 
in today's world, right? There's no way David could continue to be a leader of a nation in 2020 if he commits this kind of stuff. But anyways, what, what is his response to, to his sin with Bathsheba? He authors Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, this is what he writes. One of the verses. Against you, talking to God, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blame, uh, when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Owns the sin, takes responsibility, and accepts the penalty. That's repentance, brothers and sisters. Not a desperate mode to try and cover sin and look like you're repenting. True remorse. Samuel reminds Saul in this conversation, and perhaps he's reminding us today. He says this in verse 17. Has the Lord as much, oh sorry, he says this in verse 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? This is a stark reminder of the importance of inner transformation through faith alone that leads to proper outer practice that stems from that faith. We cannot cover our sins, brothers and sisters, and this might hit, hit home a little hard. We cannot cover our sins by singing Christian songs, wearing Christian t-shirts, attending Christian events, and posting Bible verses on our social media accounts. This counts for nothing. Jesus emphasizes this point in the Sermon on the Mount, in which he teaches the importance of the heart. A sin rests firstly in the heart, so it must firstly be dealt with there in our lives. John MacArthur notes on the term heart. What does this mean in the Hebrew context? He says this, The Hebrew concept of heart embodies emotions, the will, the intellect, and the desires. Basically everything. The life of the man will reflect his heart. Where we lay our treasures, there our heart is, says Jesus. No surprise that David is selected on the premise and basis of his heart. Something that man omits for the outer appearance, but God observes as the premise for usage in God's kingdom. So brothers and sisters, examine your heart. But perhaps the most definitive demonstration and emphatic exclamation of Saul's removal from office as king is found in chapter 15, verse 28 to 29. I think this is remarkable. And it comes through the words of Samuel to Saul. Having already told Saul plainly in verse 26, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul in desperation grabs Samuel's robe as he turns to leave and he rips off the edge of that robe. And dramatically, I think, in the most dramatic fashion, Samuel turns, looks to Saul, and he says this. Now you can imagine Samuel the prophet is looking down at Saul, holding on to that torn piece of robe. And this is what he says. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. That's a movie, <laughs> right? Brothers and sisters, let this be a warning for you today, including myself. Our sin is no joke. God's word is no joke. Our sin has caused us, like Saul and Samuel's robe, to be torn off from God. That is where the faithless and non-repentant sinner stands, enemies of Christ. But the hope comes in the form 
of a typological Christ. In this chapter we just read today, chapter 16. This typological Christ in the second king of Israel, David. Where Saul's failures typologize our own failures to be the king of our own lives, to be a satisfactory ruler of our own lives, to be anywhere near a savior of our own lives, David will act as the antithesis and pre-runner to Christ. He is a type of what? Shepherd king. He literally goes from being a shepherd to being a king. He is the shepherd king. And who is the ultimate shepherd king of scripture? Jesus Christ. So I turn your attention to point number two. Earthly thrones are subject to the heavenly throne. The story doesn't end with the failures of Saul. It ends instead, of course, or continues on, with the restoration of Israel's throne through the anointing and appointing of David. David is God's selection for God's sake, not for the people's sake, for God's sake. Look what, it, look what he says. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn, go to him. I have selected a king for myself among his sons. David is a king selected by God for the sake of God, for the purposes of God. David is not the king of Israel that Israel wants or wanted, but he will be remembered as what? The standard. Right? Talk to any Jew today. What do they say? Greatest king of all time in Jewish history, David. We want a king like David. Right? It's not the king they wanted, but it's the king they want now. David is the most mentioned and referenced figure in all of Scripture among just mortals. So we're excluding God and Jesus and all those people. <laughs> but just humans. He's the most. He's mentioned more than Adam, more than Noah, more than Moses, more than Daniel, more than Elijah, more than Isaiah, more than Jeremiah. He's mentioned over a thousand times throughout Scripture. Jesus will be called, what? The son of David. Not the son of Adam, not the son of Abraham or anyone else. The son of David. David plays a monumental role. And we will see how this narrative will develop to point us to Christ. David, unlike Saul, may not look the part physically, but he will fill the part because God wills it so. We will examine a few elements of David's anointing in comparison to Saul's onto the Israelite throne that reveals, I think, incredible truths about God's throne. Verses 1 to 5 in chapter 16 that we read today. God puts into motion a divine plan. And he instructs Samuel to get over Saul's failures. Samuel's kind of still torn about this, right? He's broken about, you know, Saul's failures. He says, yo, get over this. He's done with. To overcome his fears. He also tells him to overcome his fears of being hunted down. And to go and anoint the next king of Israel, which God has selected. The story seems, at least at face value, like a repetition of the anointing of Saul, right? But there are hints already in the earlier aspects of this story that this is going to be completely different. Verse 1, God has chosen a king, not for the people, for himself. There's your first hint. This king will be for God. Verse 4, this new king is from the tribe of Judah and the town of Bethlehem. Let me repeat, he is from the tribe of Judah and from the town of Bethlehem. Is there anything else I need to say for you to think of Jesus Christ? If this does not ring bells in your head right now, you should be quickly reminded of the origin story of Jesus. Note that Jesse, the father of David, is the grandson of what? If you read the book of Ruth at the end of chapter 4, what does it say? Jesse, the father of David. Right? 
grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And then if you fast forward to the New Testament, you get the genealogy of Christ, which will include Ruth, Boaz, Jesse, David. Verses 6 to 7, where Saul's physical features qualified him as a fitting king. Those same features are rejected in David's older brothers as being insufficient reason to be anointed king. This is not enough. Instead, God looks at the heart. You might ask, how could man even look at the heart? And that's the whole point. You can't, right? God sees what man does not see, cannot see. We have this saying, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. But brothers and sisters, let's be real. We always judge a book by its cover. We also have another saying, right? Um, it's not a saying, but we have a, like a proverb in life, right? Um, that we shouldn't you know, choose our, our wife or husband based on how they look, right? But let's be real. You choose your husband based on how they look, okay? You choose your wife based on how they look. That's, a, that's an important factor in your life. You can't see the heart. Our eyes are not programmed. They're not designed to be able to look at the heart, right? We judge people by their actions, right? And we connect it to the heart. But God can see the heart. In other words, I think this, God can see the truth. Here's Matthew Henry again, and he comments on this. The good disposition of the heart, the holiness or goodness of that, recommends us to God and is in his sight of great price, not the majesty of the look or the strength and stature of the body. Verse 11, David is an afterthought. He's too young, and he's doing the lowest of low works. He's shepherding. I know we have an exalted understanding of shepherding, right? The Lord is our shepherd, like that kind of stuff. Back in the day in the Hebrew culture and in the ancient Near Middle East, this is the worst job you could have. This is garbage man, literally. I'm not, if, by the way, if you're a garbage man, I'm not saying you have the lowest of low jobs. I'm just saying that was the cultural perspective on this position, that it's a lowly position, right? I respect garbage man. I just want to make that clear. I respect shepherds. I respect everyone who does the jobs that nobody else wants to do. This is a job nobody wants to do. Typically, uh, families would hire servants to do this, to do the shepherding. But they're making the youngest do it. In other words, they're poor, and David is viewed as the most dispensable item in the house. Go do the thing nobody wants to do. So he's shepherding. And perhaps this, and if I can, just you know, throw in some of my thoughts. This is not biblical. This is extra-biblical thinking brothers and sisters don't take this as preaching at this moment but just listen carefully perhaps his tending to his flock is exactly where he developed this heart that god saw perhaps in a place of the most humble perhaps that's where he grew to be faithful and patient think about that in the lowest of places in the most humble position. He had to what? Grow in faith and patience. Right? And maybe that's a message for us today. Our constant whining and complaining about the lowness of our lives. Instead of looking at the opportunity to grow in faith and patience. Not even his own family, his brothers and his father, saw him as an important enough person to even be presented as a candidate for king, right? 
He wasn't even welcome to the dinner table. He does nothing. David does nothing to try and get himself into the contest, right? He doesn't like run up and go, what about me? What about me? None of this. He's just out there shepherding the sheep. Therefore, it doesn't surprise me that this lowly, humble shepherd would later, in the greatest of his struggles, when he's running from his death, right, and his execution, what does he pen? He pens Psalm 23, the famous psalm. The words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Brothers and sisters, for who would know the shepherd's heart than a shepherd himself? Leave it to God to choose and provide a king for Israel, for God's people, who seems unfitting, unlikely, and unbelievable by any human standard. And when Jesus comes, you tell me, does he look the part? Does he feel the part? And can you see reliable reason by human standard to consider this man a king? Jesus will be mocked on his crucifixion. You are the king of the Jews. Here's your crown. Here's your robe. Save yourself. He didn't look the part, brothers and sisters. And they hung him on a cross. Verse 12, David is described as beautiful and handsome. And later we find out he's a beautiful poet and a wonderful musician. And in front of Goliath, a fearless warrior. Again, all just physical and outward traits that are irrelevant to God's choosing of him. Right? So verse 13, upon his anointing, this final verse, something extraordinary happens. As oil pour, pours over his head, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily, the text says. A detail not mentioned, in, again, in Saul's anointing. The oil poured on his head is but a physical representation of the divine ordinance placed upon his heart that will now set him afoot on a journey as God's ordained king. The earthly throne, brothers and sisters, and in this case, Israel's king, and any other king or leader of earth, is subject under the rule of God. Every throne, every high position is subject to the throne of God. Even the throne of hell, where Satan may sit, is subject under the throne of God. The heavenly throne rightfully presides over and above any earthly throne. Our yielding is to be to that throne alone. David knew this. Saul failed to grasp this. So one went after God's heart and the other did not. And it showed most definitively in the moments of their greatest failures as one repents fervently while the other selfishly seeks to protect themselves. So one loses the throne and one gains it. Here's my conclusion for today. And it is this. I really appreciate Samuel's wise counsel. 
And his wise response to Saul in chapter 15, verse 17. Look what it says. Is it not true, speaking to Saul, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? It is an important reminder for you and I today that in the moments of our greatest highs in life, we are to remember by whose hand we are there and by whose hand we can be easily brought down. Now equally, in our greatest lows, by whose hand we are there and by whose hand we can be lifted up. Reading and scanning the Davidic Psalms, it's pretty clear which of Saul and David understood this fact best about God. Samuel is baffled that a man who has been lifted to a throne they do not deserve by any means can be so arrogant, so foolish to turn from the God that put him there. No gratitude. But is it that distant of a lesson in our own lives, brothers and sisters? Are we so blind to not see the elements of Saul's corruption in our own heart? If you do not see that, I pray for you that you may. But if you do see that, then I want to point you to something. I want to point you to David's heart. As described earlier, a heart after God's. A heart that could see their own sin and turn to the Lord in utter dependence and repentance. As the hymn goes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus came, he died, and he resurrected from the grave in three days. And for those who place faith in Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, and as their King, shall have everlasting life and freedom from the wretch that we are. Let's take a moment to pray and respond to God's word this afternoon. And let's seek the Lord and ask him to open our eyes to the wretchedness of our sin and direct our hearts to his own and that we may see God as the one true king of our lives. Let's take a moment to pray and we'll respond in song. Conclude for today.